Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, January 30th. The 2023 Australian Open is officially in the books. What an exciting championship weekend at the year's first slam. And of course, before we break it all down here on today's show, I have to offer a couple of thank yous. First, to our Crack Racket super producer, Daniel Westoff, our CEO, Dalton Thieneman, and to every coach who helped us put together this 2023 ITA kickoff weekend broadcast. It was a phenomenal 36 hours of college tennis, which you can all go watch the replay of over on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. The kickoff weekend is, of course, the ceremonial start to every college tennis season and to be able to broadcast so much high-level action. That's what we love to do here at Crack Rackets, shine a spotlight on all of the phenomenal tennis happening at the collegiate level. That said, thank you number one goes to the college tennis universe, to all the fans who tuned in, made it such a special weekend. Thank you number two goes to all of you Crack Rackets podcast listeners for your patience over the course of the past few days. I am well aware we did not have recaps for days 12, 13, or 14 of this year's first major. That said, we're going to try and jam it all in into today's final recap show, and if we're going to try and tackle a topic so immense. You know, I always have to like to have, excuse me, some help along the way. Thankfully, I do as joining me as only he could for this 2023 Australian Open. Final recap show is a man you know best as essentially a co-host of this mini break podcast, an editorial producer for Tennis.com and Tennis Channel, returning champion, and our dear friend, a man who must have done a little bit of celebration over the course of the weekend. It's David Kane. David, welcome back to the show. The year's first major is in the books. Let me ask you this. Ten and a half hours of sleep, over or under, what did you get here with this major finally completed? God, I feel like I barely slept the last 48 hours of the slam because I did get up to cover the women's final. And then just from inertia, I popped up about a set and a half into the men's final. I didn't end up getting up to watch it because as most people in the tennis world probably knew what was going to happen. So I didn't have to, have to actually tune in and watch it live, but for the women's match, I watched that one from start to finish. And yeah, it's, I'm, I'm looking forward to catching up on my sleep in the next couple of days. I feel like I'm still a bit delayed. Yeah. There's that grand slam hangover. There's the ITA kickoff weekend hangover. Anytime you binge watch as much tennis as all of us had have over the past few days, certainly you're going to feel a need to recover. But before I let you recover, obviously, Look, we're going to get into all the finals recapping. We're going to do everything. I got to ask you first question. Everyone's wondering, what did you do to celebrate Arena Sabalenka's official entrance into Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club? So I immediately started brainstorming new names for that, <laughs> for that club. <laughs> now that I'm going to have to use it more often. Um, no, honestly, because I was covering the match live, I really feel like a delayed onset reaction and I felt very similarly actually when Simona Halep won her first slam because there was such an air of inevitability towards that mm-hmm. I didn't feel the same emotional release that maybe I would have expected to have a couple of years before having watched her move up her move her way up through the ranks and I have a very similar connection to Arena Sabalenka as you do as well through the pandemic era I thought it was going to be a big release but I think 
given the way that arena is going, I think the second slam perhaps might be a bit more of that moment because I think this is the, in many ways, this felt like the perfunctory slam. This is the one that proved mm-hmm. that she can do it. And then the ones thereafter, assuming there will be ones thereafter, will be the ones that you'll really be able to enjoy. But in the event that this is the only one, maybe in a couple of years, I'll really look back on this one more fondly. But in, in the meantime, I feel like we have, there was such a harbinger of things to come from arena after this, uh, this tremendous final that I really haven't, it hasn't hit me yet. It feels, it doesn't feel real. Well, maybe it will hit you throughout the course of this show is obviously here today. What we want to do is recap each of those finals. We'll break down all the biggest moments, all of the statistics coming out of what were, again, two very different but equally compelling, in my opinion, finals. Of course, we also want to get into some of the biggest storylines coming out of Australia, some of the things we saw. How real were those trends, and will they continue past the first month of the season? We'll dive into all of the that here today, of course, before we do a shout out to our dear friends at Tennis Point who allow us to explore everything happening across levels in the tennis world day in, day out. They also allow you to explore the best in your tennis game by providing you the best tennis equipment at the lowest prices to find it all. Just go to tennis-point.com today. Use our promo code CR15 when you inevitably make a purchase. Not only will you get 15% off all sale items, you'll get free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. All right, let's start chronologically. Arena Sabalenka versus Elena Rabakina, the clash of two members now of Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. What do you call it? Is, is it big gal tennis? What was what's the affectionate term used on tennis? Big babe tennis. That's what it is. Big babe tennis uh, is the term used. And look, that's what we saw throughout the course of this final. Ultimately, it was Arena Sabalenka 4-6-6-3-6-4. She earns her first major title. Let's start with just the opening sequence of events. She double faults on point number one of the match, DK, and all of us in the tennis world take a deep breath and worry, oh no, is this the match where that starts to set in? Well, you look for Arena Sapolenka. Not only does she go to hold in that game, she hits 17 aces against seven double faults, 51 winners against 28 unforced errors. She's broken just twice on serve, on her way to victory for Sabalenka, even in losing that first set, DK, and let's start with her side of the equation, I think she played well from start to finish. Like, uh, even in the game she was broken ultimately in set number one, I don't think she played a bad game. I just thought Rabakina connected on a couple of returns as she did. That, to me, was the biggest takeaway, is that the steadiness we saw from Sabalenka from match number one of this 2023 season, it persisted throughout the course of the month. It's becoming a very interesting head-to-head between Rabakina and Sabalenka. In fact, I was scrolling down memory lane to a previous podcast where I think we had discussed this matchup after mm-hmm. the 2021 Wimbledon Championships. And I had posited, and I think you agreed with me, that in many ways Rabakina feels like the better version of Sabalenka. Just everything that Sabalenka brings to the table it's cleaner, it's smoother, it's less emotional. So there is instead less of better, to can break we down. say, instead of better, sorry to cut you off, because I like this comparison. I think I said this at the time, the more polished version, not the Stream, better version. but Streamlined, yeah, the, perhaps? I yeah, mean, like, sure. Yeah, yeah, no, better. I, I mean, I was 
the point I was going to make was that I don't believe that is that is anymore the case because yeah, now sure. we're looking at a 4-0 head-to-head. And I think, you know, we're seeing what Sabalink can bring to the table for all of its highs and lows or its, you know, high ceiling, low floor. She's fi- she's finding a groove now that is just significantly more consistent and is able to hit through and really get into the head of Elena Verbakin. I mean, what I found so fascinating about the final is that, yes, as, as exciting as it was for me personally, as someone who enjoys watching power tennis face off at a Grand Slam final, there is that fear that, is this final going to be a bit of a disaster? I mean, it's very rare that two players who hit with such low margins as these two players do, that both of them, much one of them, much less both of them, were going to play fantastic tennis for any period of time. I mean, I think that this is probably one of the best big babe tennis Grand Slam finals since perhaps Davenport Venus 2005 Wimbledon final. I mean, it really was that level of quality from start to finish. And as you said, no, Sabalenka did not play bad in the first set. But what I expected as the match wore on was for that to continue to be the case. That Sabalenka wasn't going to play bad, but that Rybakina was going to have just a little bit more to sort of outfox Arena. That Arena was going to not have that same emotional wherewithal, perhaps, as the calmer, more focused uh, Rybakina. But what we're really starting to see with this um, matchup is the opposite is the case. That, that Sabalenka has done such tremendous self-improvement on herself that... All of those demons, all those things that would have, that would and perhaps should have held her back in the past in this matchup is, is not happening. And it's, it's just allowing her to make it over the finish line. I mean, as tricky as that final game was, it didn't necessarily feel in tremendous doubt because the serve was holding up through the majority of that game. And so couldn't be prouder. I mean, for someone who's been watching her and and picking her to win a slam every year, basically since 2018, it finally happened. It feels overdue, but it was just, it was a fantastic final. And it was great that so many people were up, it felt, to watch the final because to watch it live, it was just a, a really phenomenal experience. Yeah. I mean, again, Sabalenka's up 40 love in the first set in the one-all game where she was broken. I believe Rabakina hits a return winner for 40-15. Then there was a little net court action for 40-30. Again, it was Rabakina connecting herself, not Sabalenka falling short. No double faults. I think maybe one plus one error, but good Rabakina tennis earned that first break. Sabalenka broken at four-all in the first set as well. Again, Rabakina connecting on a couple of returns in that game, but... Sabalenka stayed steady, and to that point, she wasn't broken in sets two or three. And, you know, again, I know there were seven double faults. For what it's worth, of those seven double faults, five of them do come in set number one. Why I like this Rabakina matchup so much for Sabalenka is I think there's a simplicity to it. You talk about the big babe tennis. First strike was essential, and to your point about you know, the the idea of Rabakina being the polished version of Sabalenka. Certainly, mathematically, that's the case. Rabakina right now, according to Tennis Abstract, over the course of the last 52 weeks, second best server on the WTA Tour. Trails only Caroline Garcia in her hold percentage. While Sabalenka has moved into the top 25, obviously, over the course of the past year, there's been a little bit more inconsistency. It's been a little bit more erratic. You look here in 2023... And obviously, it's biased because Arena Sabalenka hasn't lost a match yet. But Sabalenka's holding serve 89% of the time. That's obviously elite of the elite. And that number will go down as more matches are played. But the big picture takeaway for me from this month for Arena Sabalenka is she has cleaned up her first strike tennis. It's just her ability to execute 
not only behind the first and second serve, but with that first ground stroke, David, if she gets her racket on the ball now, she has the opportunity and probably will put you in a disadvantageous position, or if not, hit an outright winner. And I saw a stat, and I'll look it up. I got to scroll through my Twitter, but it was something like Arena Sabalenka won 41% of her points throughout the course of the entire Australian Open on straight-up winners. If you want to put a stat as a plaque in Serena Williams' Power Tennis Country Club, that's it. And it's just like, we always knew she had that firepower, but I think you see it with her, your eyes now. Not only how cleanly she executes on the plus one strike, but her ability to absorb and redirect pace as well. Not only did she match Sabalenka in the plus one category, and you look at them, they each won 75 of the zero to four, to the four shot rallies, but Sabalenka beat her when the match got extended as well. Sabalenka was a little bit better defensively. She was making smart choices with just attacking the open court, forcing Rabakana to consistently have to hit on the move. What I guess what's so striking, and this is where we can move big picture here for Sabalenka, who again, clean breaks of serve, in sets two and three, protected her own serve, steady tennis. I don't know how much analysis we can do because of how much of this match was just hit big first ball, hit for his first big first strike. Both of them did it well. But for a month now, Sabalenka's executed. And the question becomes, obviously, how replicable is it, DK? Yeah, that's the issue, is that was she going to be able to execute this on a Grand Slam stage? I mean, to, to speak of the seven double faults, when she was playing at her best and when she burst onto the scene in 2018, seven double faults was not the problem. It was when it was 17, 19, 21 double faults and the way that she was hitting those double faults. I mean, even in the in the final against Rubakana, she was going for a lot of those second serves. So the risk is is part of is a feature, not a bug in the situation in this in the way that she has revamped and re re um rejiggered her approach to the match. I mean, is this replicable? I mean, in many ways, behind Sviantek, Sabalenka has really been the second most consistent player on tour even at her worst, I mean, as, as as rough as that first couple of months were, there really haven't been other than Pagula and Gar- maybe Garcia to a lesser extent, a little bit on Jabor. But I mean, the way that this is trending, we're really seeing Sabalenka become the immediate rival to Iga Svantec for that number one ranking. And I think that that's, there's certainly going to be a lot of opportunities for her to gain points over the next couple of months. First of all, how to see that race start to happen because we haven't really seen a race for number one in many years and how it takes shape. And speaking of Sabalenka's first strike tennis, I think what's even more interesting than just the fact that she's executing it, it's it's the way that she's executing it as well. I mean, even the match point against Magda Lynette in the semifinals, mm-hmm. she puts it away for a winner on match point, but she really could have wailed on the ball in a way that would have been reckless and breathless and amazing if she made it, but she could have missed it. And yet she, she put just enough margin on it. It was a clean put away. She has such a range when it comes to her power that she's able to dial it back to an eight instead of a 12. And it's still a clean winner that nobody has a chance of getting on. And the more that she finds that niche of power, she's really going to become unstoppable because just her strength and her power just on a B level is significantly better. And then when she feels confident enough to go for AA plus, then she's completely unplayable. I found the number 47% of her points were ended by winners that she won 47 
We need one of those videos when Petra Kvitova won Wimbledon. They showed all two hundred X of her winners. We want. We need one of those. You guys, yeah. AO, Twitter, AO social. Take care. Yeah, Midi Break crew. I know one of you will be willing to do it. Every winner from Arena Sabalenka, and that's the theme here. And again, you look through the month for Arena Sabalenka. Eleven and zero. She drops one set. In her 11 victories, she plays three total tie breaks in those 11 victories as well. And again, she's holding about 90% of the time during that stretch. It matches what you see with your eyes. She's playing with transcendent power. And again, overall in the match, 51 winners. Even if you take out the 17 aces, 34 winners off of her racket. And we've talked about that overwhelming power tennis for years now. That's why she was always an eventual inductee. And now again, it's official. Welcome to Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. Westoff, give me some sort of induction sound effect here because it does feel necessary. And with that said, you know, beyond that though, and this is where we both – we did this podcast in December, so we're rehashing this to some extent. And there's been a lot of Sabalenka coverage over the years here, not only between us, but obviously Jeff Sackman, who's a board member at Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club as well. I got to have him on to celebrate at some point over the course of the next week. But for me – and this is where you see the difference. And it was only a six-point margin in the five-plus shot rallies between Sabalenka and Rabakina in this final and part of that has to do with Rabakina is also a transcendent power tennis uh, a player. That said, you look for Arena Sabalenka, who, by the way, for her career, 215 and 102. She's won two-thirds of her matches for her career on the WTA Tour. A reminder, she is the oldest 24-year-old you will ever meet. But what I think we've both always seen attached to that elite power tennis is the elite athleticism, is the elite power and the elite quickness with her first step, that ability to really move forward through the court and cover ground at the net so successfully. I think that's the biggest takeaway for me from the first month, not just the consistency, DK, but the movement. I mean, she was better at absorbing the first strike of Rabakina than Rabakina was for her. She did a great job of extending rallies against both Vekic and Bencic, who brought pretty good power to the table in the round of 16 and quarterfinals as well. I just think she's taken her movement to the next level as well. And you have this elite athlete who's capable of playing elite power tennis and has those elite weapons. And that's why it's just like firmly ensconced in tier one. It's all the pieces coming together. To borrow a line from RuPaul, Rubina <laughs> Sabalenka has conquered her inner saboteur. I mean, I really think that was a fascinating insight that we got from one of her press conferences, this idea mm-hmm. that she just didn't have that self-belief that people would come up to her asking her for autographs. And she was like, who am I? I'm nobody. And sure. all she really had to do was listen to our podcast because she would have gotten a big dose of self-esteem right away the way we've been talking about her the last couple of years. We've always had a lot of belief in her ability. And I think the fact that she is now realizing that, hey, I'm actually – the favorite to win these matches. I have the weapons to beat basically everybody. I just need to figure out how to do it. That's half the battle. And, you know, I'm really just very happy that someone who has worked so hard on themselves to fix every outstanding facet in their game to make it as good as it possibly can be gets rewarded because that's the story that now coaches are going to be able to tell players, look at what happened. Look at what Sabalenka did. 
She wasn't able to get to serve in the court. She gets a biomechanic, uh, biomechanic expert on the, on the team, fixes the serve, you know, experiments with with a sports psychologist, takes a break from the psychologist, you know, works out her mental game, is able to win a Grand Slam title. I mean, these are the sorts of lessons that you want to be able to impart on the next generation because you see, we've seen so many times players just sort of dance with what they brought. And if they're having yips, they're going through yips. And if they're they're choking in big matches, you know, it's just it's a matter of time until they stop choking. I mean, it's sort of the sort of the anti-Garbini Muguruza, not to throw her under the bus necessarily, but it just feels like sure. someone who is just sort of waiting for the next time to come on fire and come online, whereas Sabalenka has been actively working towards this. It's great to see it get rewarded. No, you're 100% correct. And again, there was a fire to Sabalenka. She comes out in set number two. And, you know, I think we saw the stat that she had lost her last or she had won her last six uh three set matches that she'd played or something Crazy. at the yeah at the majors and I think her last seven losses have all been in three sets as well so not only does she win a lot of three set matches but by the way if you're going to beat her it's going to take three sets as well because inevitably she will you know be lit on fire through the course of some point of the match and again she breaks Rabakina in game number four of the second set and has opportunities to go up a double break. Now, she wasn't able to capitalize them, but again, gets that early break in the third set. And then, you know, again, she's the one th- uh, at f- at 3-4 uh, who gets that clutch break at the end of the match, who uh, is able to, again, separate herself there, or excuse me, at 3-all, able to separate herself there uh, in that moment and, you know, was able to put consistent pressure on Rabakina throughout the course of that game. It's really, really good. And now all of us have to wonder, again, what will we see from her moving forward? How consistent will she be? But And maybe this is how we can turn our attention to Rabakina here as well, who again was broken twice in sets two and three. It's not as though she played poorly. She managed to keep pace, played Sabalenka even in the first strike tennis number, 75 points apiece. But I went back and looked and Mini break listeners will know I love to go to the framework of August 2020, this COVID era. I even went all the way back to January 2020 just to throw one more slam into the mix as well. Who are the players with the most victories at the slams since the start of the 2020 season? And again, that speaks to perhaps the consistency of these players in this era. I didn't look at everyone, but I went and looked at a lot. And the leader, as you can imagine, can you guess who the leader is? Come on. It's very Iga? Yeah, Iga, 49 <laughs> wins. She's 49 and 9 since the start of 2020. Could have been a trick question. <laughs> yeah, it's true, but 49 like and Jill 9. Jill Teichman, come on down. <laughs> <laughs> 49 and 9 is ridiculous. She's number one by a wide margin. Can you guess who's number two? I guess it's Sabalenka. It's Arena Sabalenka, who is the second most I found. 35 and 10 in the 11 majors that she's played since the court, uh, start of 2020. And you do the math there. She's played 11 majors, 35 victories. She's making at least the fourth round at every major that she plays on average. And for what it's worth, you look for her during this stretch of time. She has made at least round number four at six of the 11 majors that she's played. Obviously, a couple semifinals attached to that as well. After that, I looked at the numbers on Jabir, obviously two finals last year, 12 wins, helped pad those stats. She's got 33 total victories. The other member of the 30 club that I could find, Elena Rabakina, 
who obviously has both a slam final and a slam title during this time, so 13 wins right there. But she's 30-11 and 11 at the slams since the start of the 2020 season. She's made at least the second week four of the uh, now te- uh, 11, excuse me, that she's played. But, of course, when she's made at least the second week, she's gone on to two finals then. What I want to – and maybe this brings us to a big-picture storyline as well, but you look at this final. It made sense. Rabakina played flawless tennis against Iga Svantec. She followed it up really well against both Ostapenko and Azarenka and sustained that level in the final against Sabalenka as well. You look back at the U.S. Open final. It's Iga Svantec, the world number one, taking on 2022 Wimbledon finalist Anjabur, who, of course, ends the year at two. Not an unexpected final there either. You look with retrospect at the Wimbledon final. Rabakina, Jabur, it felt weird at the time, six months later. It doesn't feel that weird. You look for Rabakina. You look at her place at the larger ecosystem, DK. Dare I say, are we starting to get some semblance of normalcy back on the WTA Tour? Do we have a more definitive tier system now starting to be worked out? Well, first of all, I will add that Sabalenka is number two in Grand Slam wins without having played Wimbledon last year. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, not that she would have overtaken Ega with that margin, but it probably would have been a lot closer um, mm-hmm. given how that worked out for for Ega at Wimbledon. But with Rabakina and speaking of just sort of the general trend where things are going, it I don't know. I mean, I think the big change right now is that Sabalenka and Rabakina, as of now, are really rounding into form. And I would say Sabalenka has been rounding into form for a bit longer because we'd have like sort of the US Open, WTA Finals, and we have Rabakina sort of if you want to count the exo swing, which ended up being a bit more informative than we thought it would be. Congratulations, World Tennis League. You know, really teed <laughs> us up for that Iga upset in Australia. So those two players are really rounding into form. I don't anticipate Iga really dropping precipitously. Jessica Bagula playing quite well. So mm-hmm. if you're talking about a group of a core four, I mean, listen, that's it's better than we've been dealing with over the last couple of years. It's really been just one versus everybody else effectively since the pandemic. So the fact that we're potentially getting four consistent players featuring in these quarterfinals, semifinals of big tournaments. Hey, let's, let's celebrate that because it's, it's, it's a lot better than what we've been dealing with basically since, since lockdown. So, I mean, with Rabakina, listen, she probably would have beaten anybody else in the bottom half of the draw <laughs> based on how it shook out. It's unfortunate for her that she had a really tough draw, got to beat Iga Ostapenko and um, Azarenka and then had to play Sabalenka in the final. But it's great to see her back in a Grand Slam final, back in, in a hardcore Grand Slam final, which is, I think, where we I think where we ultimately saw her making first based on the way that she started the year in 2020, you know, making all those final semis. Um, I think right before lockdown, she made this, the final in Dubai and played that classic match against Halep. Um, so I would definitely look for Rabakina to continue to build on this. I maybe have a bit more confidence in Sabalenka just because there's a bit more of a body of work and we've seen Rabakina really slump. But then at the same time, we also have to see how Sabalenka will respond to being a reigning Grand Slam champion. It might be that might be something to adjust to because it's one more new frontier for her to to see through. But overall, I think that the women's women's game is really shaping up to be in a very good spot if these players hold their form and even those just behind them manage to hold, whether we're talking about Benchich or Vekic or Azarenka, even Magda Lynette. I mean, what a, what a revel. That, that was a phenomenal semifinal performance from Magda Lynette, who against the different arena Sabalenka very easily could have been a finalist at this tournament. So, I mean, I think that, I mean, for me personally, watching this tournament, the women's women's draw was significantly more exciting than the men's, which is the first time in, in a while I felt that way. Well, that Lynette run, by the way, 
again, this is my whole thing of there should be different windows of the Hall of Fame and like unexpected slam runs. Conteve, Alexandrova, Garcia, Pliskova, back to back to back to back. She was like three and thirty-six in her career against top twenty opponents entering the uh, the Australian Open. Hadn't made the second round in her first twenty-nine appearances at Slams. Had seventeen first-round losses in those first twenty-nines. Like you're right, the Lynette run was fascinating, and it still allowed there to be an attachment to this era of parody. There had to be a little bit of unexpected something that happened in this Slam. It was provided by Magda Lynette, but, you know, again, like, because I did look it up, might as well use the stat. 49 wins for Iga Svantec. You had, uh, again, for Arena Sabalenka, what was it, 35 at the slams. For Elena Rabakin, you had 30. Jabur has 33. Svantec's still in her own tier. You want to put Rabakina, Jabur, Sabalenka in that next tier. That's fine. Right after that, Pagula's got 29 Barty's got 26. She went 26 and four in the slams from the start of 2020 through her retirement. That's quietly ridiculous and worth shouting out. But Coco Goff has 28. Maria Sakari, 28 as well. Like that's kind of the seven that matter. Like there's your tier. Like that. That's that's sort of it. And you know, again, looking right now, there are nine players who rank in the top 25 in both hold and break percentage in the last 52 weeks. You knew it was coming, DK. You have Iga in the top 10. She's there by herself. Makes sense. Top 15, Pagula and Halep, given their consistency over the past year, kind of makes sense. Top 20, you have Goff and Boshkova, who, of course, has been a qualifier superstar. And then top 25, you've got a little bit more variance. You've got Vekic, who's been on a tear of lately. Alexandrova, who, when she looks good, she looks really good. And then Sabalenka and Jabur, like... Those names kind of make sense to me. I just, I do feel there is a little bit of stability. To your point, again, you, you got to see all the big guns go head-to-head. Rabakina, Faisish, Fiontech. You saw, you know, again, Sabalenka have to go through uh, some tricky players throughout the course of her run as well. Certainly, Victoria Azarenka uh, got tested on her way to the semifinals. That Pagula match brought out her best tennis. The best sort of showed up. Like, and it's... It's kind of consistently—I mean, again, U.S. Open, Sabalenka, Sviantec, uh, Jabur, and whomever the fourth semifinalist was, but at least those three right there, you feel pretty consistent in that group. It feels like normalcy. It's the new normal. I'll say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The generational—well, maybe that's it. It's that— and again, we haven't had Osaka. We lost Barty. Andrescu's still doing her thing. But it does feel like in this first post-Serena slam, all the big guns were able to breathe. Like, it's finally like, okay, let me have my space to do my thing. And, you know, again, to your point, Arena Sablanka, now the question becomes, where does she go from here? Because obviously with her struggles to start last year, doesn't have a ton of points to defend. Rabakina, justifiably, by the way, into the top 10 for the first time. She's sitting at number 10. Sablanka, new career high, number two. Quick flip side before we move on to the men. Who's most disappointed coming out of this uh, Australian Open. Who looks at the results, look at the window, whatever it is, maybe you look at the draw and you're just kicking yourself saying, man, I might have had an opportunity. I mean, given how well Rabakina and Sabalenka played that tournament, especially once we got to the quarterfinal stage, that kind of did feel like that should have been the final. I mean, if I'm Jessica Pagula, perhaps I'm feeling a little annoyed that I still haven't made a Grand Slam semifinal and I was up against a player that I just beat in Guadalajara. And 
you know, I didn't even win a set, you know, and then all of a sudden the story becomes about Vika making the semis at, you know, however old she is and for the first time since 2013. I mean, it's it's a tale of two tournaments for for Pagula and 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 maybe in a way for golf as well. I mean, although I think golf still has so much more time and obviously so much more potential. Um, but I mean, coming out of the WTA finals with both golf and Pagula playing as, you know, unfortunately, as they did in Fort Worth and then sort of building up a bit of a head of steam at this tournament only to kind of get both of them get dashed, you know, by inspired and informed opponents. I suppose they would be disappointed. I may be a little disappointed if I'm Carolina Pliskova. I mean, depending on how confident I was feeling, you know, here was my shot to make a Grand Slam semi and I, you know, kind of get Magda Lynette has her way with me. I mean, that's sort of not, if cer- certainly the way Pliskova considers herself and her standing and her game. I'm sure she was probably not sleeping too great after that defeat. But otherwise, I mean, you know, the the best players in the draw in many ways made it to the end of the tournament. And that's not something we can often say in this post pandemic era. It's usually ends up being, you know, feels like that usually the tournament peaks for the women in the third, fourth round. And then we end up with a semifinals. Like that's like, what happened? So, I mean, I think for this is again, if we can keep this, if we can bottle this and let the, you know, put these eight women in a bottle and, you know, and add, throw in Iga, throw in owns, throw in uh Coco and sort of, you know, let the bus keep riding and this is the season, then we're really shaping up for a great year. Mm-hmm. I have three players I would point to. You tell me if you agree or disagree. Let's start with player number one, Belinda Bencic, who I think can justifiably come out of this Australia saying I'm the fourth best player in the world right now. Behind Iga, who beat her, Sabalenka obviously gets her as well. Rabakina playing as well as she has. But for Belinda Bencic to get to the second week of a slam, which was the one thing pretty much in her entire calendar last year, so much success except for at the slam. She gets that off her belt. I just think she wonders to herself, if I'm in the top half of the draw, do I make the finals? Because again, she ran into Sabalenka, 5-2 and two match. That first set, she played her even. Like, it was really good tennis. She just didn't quite have the movement, the defense to absorb first strike tennis the way Sabalenka did throughout the stretch. I think she leaves a little disappointed that it was a round of 16 and not better. Mm, Yeah, I mean... It's a backhanded compliment, by the way, because she is playing well right now, but she's probably like, ugh, like, tough draw. No, definitely. I mean, looking at that Adelaide run, I mean, I feel like you've been putting a lot of stock in in the Benchich Benchich business, but I mean, she did have a very good run to the Adelaide title. She beats uh, Garcia, Kasakina, and Muguruza, for whatever you take of that, and then comes to Australia and finally does make a second week, but immediately loses. So, I mean, six of one, half a dozen, whether it's a third round or a fourth round, I don't know if she really considers that to be a big hurdle necessarily, and she, you know, gets Tomova, Lou, you know, Georgie to get there. I mean... She did have her chances. I, I'm more if I'm if I am Benchich, I am disappointed that I don't win that first set against Sabalenka and figure out a way to win it because she was certainly had her chances in Sabalenka. That's probably her worst set of that tournament, you know, up till four two. And then, I mean, I was I was covering that match and I kind of put my head down to start like putting some boilerplate text up at four two, thinking it was going to be a Benchich first set. I look up, it's five four for Sabalenka, and then that was the, you know how quickly things changed for Arena. I mean, I think Benchich is always going to be on the back foot in that. Um, kind of matchup. I mean, it, it, in the in this universe where the power players, your Sabalenka's, Rybakina's, Ostapenko's, really start to take um, center stage here, I do worry where Bencic fits in. I feel like Bencic fits in better four or five months ago when she's competing with Iga and Owens, like just that level of power. And I don't think that Bencic's technique is as great as even an Azarenka who can absorb and redirect, I think, a bit better, especially off the forehand side. So with that said, you know, 
it's improvements. And I think Benchich has a high opinion of where she sees her game ultimately landing. So if she comes out of this tournament with confidence, then, you know, a lot of hardcore tournaments coming up. So she should really take as much advantage as possible to gain a lot of points and hopefully not have to play Sabalenka in the fourth round of a slam again. Yeah, well said. By the way, I'm smiling because I figured out a question I'm going to ask you now in this podcast, and I know you're really going to enjoy it. I'm also smiling because, of course, fantastic analysis. Name number two, Jung Chin Wen. We know she's coming. Obviously, uh, the young player from China, I think 20 years old now, four and four second round loss to Bernardo Pair. The only reason I put her on the disappointment list is because Big Babe Power Tennis was the name of the game at this Open, and you just feel like we should be talking about her in that discussion always. I mean, I just question how fresh and healthy Jung Chinwen was coming into this tournament. I mean, she played that that crazy qualifying match against my girl Potapova, and it feels like it kind of broke both of them. I mean, she yeah. retired from the match against Kvitova and then, you know, plays a flat match against Bernarda Perra. So you wonder maybe she's not at 100%. I mean, I'm certainly I'm bummed for my colleague, Matt Fitzgerald, who, you know, traveled to Spain to uh, interview Jung Chinwen and had a great feature uh, teed up on her. And we were wondering when to drop it. And we were thinking, well, we want to have it a little bit early, but I was thinking... I said, you know, she can win this tournament. I mean, like buckle up, like just based on, you know, talent and and the way that the women's game is shaping up. So, I mean, she's still so young and still so new that, you know, this was certainly the first big opportunity for her to make a deep run, but I don't anticipate it being the last, not the least which because she had a breakout run in at the French. It's not like someone who's going to, oh, she's not great on clay and, you know, it's going to be a long stretch for her to get back onto faster courts. I mean, this is, this could be a very fruitful six months for her if she, you know, keeps her head down and, and keeps improving. Very well said. It's just because, again, low-hanging fruit for her certainly was this Australian Open from a points perspective. And, again, you just felt like – and she's got so much time. And the draw. I mean, yeah, no exactly. offense, Bernardo Pera. No, you've got so much time. And so, again, I don't think she's too disappointed coming out of it. The last one, and let's just have this conversation quick because we always got to do it, and rescue. I mean, like, it's a holding pattern. It's 20 good minutes of tennis followed by 15 minutes of what just happened. And, you know, again, a great match followed by a head scratcher. I mean, I don't know. I think if you lose a Grand Slam match to Christina Buxa, I feel like you kind of have to be, I feel like you kind of have to get back your US Open trophy. I mean, it just feels like that kind <laughs> of, like, you know, give her the hook. I mean, that's that's a rough one, especially, you know, Grand Slam, Andreescu, three sets, you know, that's a match you would expect peak BB to win. And we're, we're starting to get into some sticky territory with her where maybe, you know, it's going to take a, a while for her to, you know, if ever to get back into that, you know, rhythm that, you know, you know, it felt like lightning in a bottle and she was able to do it. She was able to find that lightning in a bottle multiple times in 2019. But even at the end of 2019, we were starting to see some phrase at the seam injuries and, you know, inconsistencies and perhaps, you know, she's going to be one of those players who comes out of nowhere and it's going to be hard to expect things from her. And so in that sense, it'd be harder to be disappointed when she doesn't show up. Yeah. Oh, very well said. Um, I mean, again, hopefully she stays healthy for the course of the year and we get to see her play 52 consecutive weeks or I should say, I suppose, 40 consecutive weeks. And, you know, again, how does her... Although nowadays it is like 52 weeks. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so how does she hold up? That is the biggest question. All right, last thing before we move on to the men's side. I think the men's side will be a little bit quicker because there are just fewer questions coming out of it. But through month number one of the season, to recap for our listeners, David Kane and I did a draft in December of teams heading into this 2023 season. There's a surprise on DK's face. That's why I had the surprise face as well, because I realized I should ask you about this. To recap, he has Sabalenka, which is kind of bullshit because I gave him the first pick in the draft. And so again, he's got that going for him. But Sabalenka, Collins, Osaka, Potapova, 
Parks. I have Bencic, Samsonova, Teichman, which I'm regretting, Krejcikova, and Von Drusova. DK, by the way, when we get to the men's side of this equation, I crushed you. But we'll do the women's for now. Who won, in your opinion, month number one? I mean, in a universe where all that matters is winning the slam, I win. But in, by every other metric, I think you pull ahead because at least at least everybody else on your list, I think maybe except for one, had at least a notable result coming out of the slam. Whereas <laughs> I, I really just had arena and no one real no one else came to the table on that one. But I, I I took the whole I took the whole plate. So I'll be happy. I'll take that win there. Yeah. I mean again, um I would give you the slight win. You had Collins as well, who I think played a really good match against Rabakina in this event. And so because they both did so well in Australia, even though Von Drusova beats Jabur, Bencic wins a title, is playing well. Sabalenka won the slam. You deserve – I seed – it's like I – mean, I was going to make a boxing analogy, and then I looked up at the screen and was like, wait, who am I talking to? Um, you know, it's like a – yeah, it's like a 12-11 first round goes to DK. Uh, but with that said, let's move on now to the men's side of the equation. Uh, of course, look – did all of us feel that it was inevitable? Yes, certainly. I, at the start of the tournament, made one of my futures bets on our GSP Ace of the Day segment, where, by the way, we finished 23-16 and 16 overall, DK. My goal each and every time at the start of one of these slams is to win over 60% of my picks. You look here at the 2022, uh, 2023 Australian Open, 59%. I was at 58.9, just short in the end, but still over 500, always a victory, and certainly it helped our final stats to be boosted by Novak Djokovic, who, yes, he certainly had some hamstring issues throughout the course of this event, but ultimately Djokovic slowly but surely rounds himself into form, and now for Novak Djokovic, as you saw on his jacket, 22 slams overall for Novak uh, as he wins uh his 10th Australian Open title, knocking off Stefano Tsitsipas in straight sets, 6-3, 7-6, 7-6 in the end. And, I mean, look, Djokovic broke serve twice. Tsitsipas broke serve once. There were 36 winners to 22 unforced errors for Djokovic, 40 winners to 42 unforced errors for Tsitsipas. Even much like in the women's final, first strike tennis, players were about even. Djokovic, 61, zero to four shot rallies, uh, won Tsitsipas, 58. Ultimately, that's what this comes down to, right? Djokovic matches Tsitsipas' first strike capabilities. Djokovic a little bit better when the points got extended. Obviously, he was able to find that Tsitsipas backhand consistently when it mattered, fights off a couple of break points, set point chances at the end of set number two. But the big thing to me, and I said it all tournament long, you look for Djokovic over the course of his last 52 weeks. He's now 54-7. and seven. He's holding serve 89.3% of the time. That's a top five number on the ATP Tour. It's 3.5% better than his career average. And let's keep in mind, this is Novak Djokovic, 35 years old. I equated it to Michael Jordan in an analogy that I think you'll enjoy, second three-peat for him on the Bulls, where he's not the reckless, unequivocally greatest athlete that he was before his foray into baseball, but he's still smarter and better at basketball than every other player in the league. That's Novak Djokovic now. 
Like he's almost a de facto serve bot with how effective he is with his first, uh, with the spots he hits on serve, how effective and precise he is with his approach shots, which are just unequivocally the best now in tennis. And whether it was against Tommy in the semis, Tsitsipas in the finals, any match else, other time in Australia, he drops just one set. He drops serve just six times throughout the course of the event. Novak's number one in the world rankings again. It makes sense. He's still the best player in the world, is he not? I admit I did lose focus a little bit because I started thinking about what a Space Jam remake would look like starring Novak Djokovic. (laughs) Would it have done better than the LeBron James version? I mean, I do feel like... Novak can bring sort of a cartoony, you know, slapsticky comedy to the to the scene sure. where I feel like maybe it could be it could be something. I don't know if it would be watchable, but it would be something. But I mean, <laughs> listen, uh, it's strange because on one hand, like it did feel very obvious from I guess maybe the fourth round, if if not earlier, that Djokovic was going to run away with this tournament. But the Dim and Hour match, you're absolutely the Dim and right. Hour. I mean, like yeah. I think we were all kind of on hamstring watch for the first three matches, and you know he was stretching, he was injured, it was how injured was he? But then once he you know really worked his way through Dim and Hour, you feel like okay, he's got this. But at the same time, things have gone wrong for Djokovic when we all thought he was going to run away with the title, you know, whether it was, you know, the last couple of U.S. Opens. I mean, there have been moments where we really thought he was just going to win and then it doesn't happen, you know, where it gets deported. I mean, like there are certainly times when we had, you know, high expectations and he doesn't always meet them. Granted, he sets the bar very, very high. But um, with that said, yeah, I mean, this was a really, you know, this was a statement victory. I mean, it just mm-hmm. goes to show that, you know, for all this um, hype about the next gen, it does feel like that we're we're now encroaching on, definitively the Alcaraz Runa generation being that next hope to overtake these, you know, big two slash big three guys, because we, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the Nisha Corey Rounders generation. It wasn't the team Zverev generation. And now it's not looking like it's going to be perhaps the, uh, you know, the Sitsipas Rude, you know, uh, Medvedev generation. Now it's looking like it's going to be the teens, you know, it's kind of all, you know, the, the, the big three guys have officially blitzed through three you know, um, challenging generations. And so it's really going to be one of those st- statistical narratives that we're going to be leaning on. I think when these, when these guys retire, just how many, how much turnover there has been in the last decade, and yet they've managed to always be the best. And so, I mean, for Tsitsipas, you know, he needed to really take it to Djokovic. He had his opportunities in the second set and he didn't do it. And I mean, that's just sort of speaks to a mental, you know, a, a, a tactical mental deficiency that's still lacking in these big matches. And so, I mean, you know, even heading into this final, you feel like he didn't get it done at the French when it's a better surface for him. He was up two sets and conceivably almost a break. And then, you know, so here it felt like there really wasn't much momentum necessarily on Sitsipas's side where you felt like this was going to be all of that competitive. So right. at the same time, you know, for Djokovic, just onward and upward. I mean, this well, feels like we're really racing into, you know, 25, 26 territory within the next couple of years. Well, you look for Novak. He's now won 41 in a row in Australia, 28 at the Australian Open and Open Era record, 19 against top 10 opponents in Australia, 17 matches overall, 14 in a row at Grand Slams, 11 in a row against top 10 opponents, 9 in a row in Australian Open Finals. He now has won 93 career titles, fourth behind Lendl, Federer, Connors. You look, uh, obviously, uh, for Novak Djokovic. Here's the craziest stat. He has now won... 
his 22nd Grand Slam title. He's played 69 Slam main draws. He's won 31.88% of the Slams he's played in. Shout out to Tennis My Life on Twitter for that stat. That trails just Borg, who won 39.3%, Laver, who won a third of the Slams he played, and Nadal, who's won 32.28% of the Slams he's played in the open era. That's just... I mean, one out of every, three out of every 10. You're winning three out of every 10. That's that's nuts that he's done that for a career. And, you know, again, it's interesting you, you talk about 25-26 and, you know, what Tsitsipas was unable to do because Tsitsipas did a lot of things well. Like, let's be clear, he did have a window to take that second set. Uh, he did match Djokovic, not perfectly, but he played with pretty good efficiency with his first forehand, with his first serve. There were times when Djokovic, you know, again, when Djokovic didn't hit the return cleanly, he kind of seeded the point. The Tsitsipas forehand was too good. Djokovic, to some extent, saving his energy. But again, ign- that speaks to the efficiency of the Tsitsipas forehand, which I would point out was exceptional all tournament long. The thing that Djokovic can still do that I just don't understand how he does it at this age is that ability to just absorb, redirect pace and play exceptional. The elite defense that has defined probably the greatest career in men's tennis history. And it's just like in the biggest moments, down set point in set number two. Throughout the course of the tie breaks in sets two and three, he either played Tsitsipas even going forehand to forehand cross court or more than anything else, he exploited that weakness, which is, again, depth to that Tsitsipas backhand. Djokovic, throughout the course of the match, an extraordinarily efficient uh, 10 of 15 at the net. Look, I mean, again, it was a clean it was a clean performance for Novak. Dare I say a clean kill for him, one that, to your point, we have saw. The moment he said his hamstring felt better, hamstring, his hamstring is how I like to say that word, um, in that fourth round against Demon, you're right. It felt inevitable, and I do wonder. I, I, I mean, again, big picture, you look for Novak, 22. I guess this is where we'll end that equation. Is he your favorite entering the French Open? Because he's obviously the favorite entering Wimbledon. He's obviously going to be the favorite if he's allowed to play at the 2023 U.S. Open. Is he your favorite? Are, do you feel that much better against him versus the field? He's the only guy who ranks top 10 in hold and break percentage over the last year heading into the French as well. No, only because I will say that, you know, Serena Williams can tell you that when it comes to breaking records, you know, things can go a little funky and maybe, you you know, you get just that much tighter and you're not as ready and maybe Alcaraz will be back and maybe Holger Runa will be that much better. And so, I mean, listen, I'm not one to blindly marvel at excellence, especially since we've been dealing with this sort of level of excellence for the last, you know, decade and a half now from these guys. I, I am much more inclined to look at what is happening on the other side of the net. I mean, listen, Djokovic is fantastic. He's an amazing athlete. He's also like, what, 102 years old. He's <laughs> up against like Stefano Tsitsipas at his physical peak. And and someone who has, I guess, failed to really intimidate Novak Djokovic. I mean, he's won what? Now 10 straight matches against him. I mean, this is... You're right, but I don't, I don't think Tsitsipas... He had a window poorly. and he politely closed it. I mean, the fact that he couldn't even win a set. I mean, this is like the bare minimum at this point. You need to be at least winning a set against Djokovic or Nadal in these matches. Otherwise, what are we doing here? I mean, he's the number three. He was what, the number three seed? I mean, like this yeah, is... Yeah, but it was a competitive match. Like, again, you look for Djokovic, who does ultimately earn the two breaks of serve, two Tsitsipas's one in this match. Like, 
Only three breaks of serve, very much first strike tennis was the name of the game. It's not as though Tsitsipas wasn't able to keep pace, right? Now, you're right. At no point did you feel that Djokovic was truly threatened other than down set point in that second set. That might have been the two-minute window where you thought to yourself, okay, just because of the by virtue of the scoreboard of, yes, this one-break opportunity happens to come at 5-4. That might be an issue for Novak. But big picture, even if he was down a 15-30 in his service game, it did feel like Novak could find that Tsitsipas backhand, find his way to a first strike whenever he needed it, or even the slice out wide, just first strike to the open backhand court. That said, again, Tsitsipas was close. And you look at the stats, three, six, and seven, closer, closer. Like, I actually thought this match was more competitive than his French Open final, where, let's be clear, he was up two sets to love, and then Novak turned on the Jets. There was never that big of a separation between Novak and Tsitsipas. Again, Novak, I don't know why I'm calling him by his first name, Djokovic and Tsitsipas. Djokovic was better. You're right. But I do think if you're Stefano Tsitsipas, you come out of this event saying, A, I've now made four out of the last five Australian Open semifinals. B, I've made three semifinals in a row. I get to another final. My serve, my forehand are firing on all cylinders. I thought physically Tsitsipas was up to the challenge. Again, he does have that particular weakness, the backhand return, which Novak was able to exploit in the biggest moments. But like, I don't know. I'm kind of glass half full for Tsitsipas coming out of the month. He lost one match, Stefano Tsitsipas, this month. One match, and it was to Djokovic in a match where he faced five break points in three sets. He was broken twice. That's it. Had a set point chance in set number two. Yes, he lost it. And yes, at this point of the career, Tsitsipas, 24 years old, you can't just take moral victories. And you could see that in his body language after the match. But this might be crazy to say the the gap felt slightly more narrow in this match in particular. I mean, I guess if you're Stefano Tsitsipas, you come out of this tournament thinking of a very popular Stefano Tsitsipas quote, which he came up with. It's if, if it's <laughs> at first you don't succeed, try, try again. I, I remember where I was when I heard him say that for the first time. And it really it hit me. And it's something that I that I've taken with me on my on my emotional. It was on his first album, journey. right? 2004, his mixtape. Yeah, it's yeah. MySpace era. Yeah, you were there. <laughs> yeah. HTML. Um, and listen, I think with Sitsipas, look, he's certainly someone who believes in it. You know, it's sort of similar to Zverev in a way, someone who believes that they are they were anointed to be these challengers to Nadal and Djokovic. So it must be very irritating to them that Alcaraz and Rune are the ones that have managed to beat Nadal and Djokovic sort of when it matters. Um, yeah, listen, I, I'm... I don't want to see another straight set loss. You know, I don't, I don't care if it's two tiebreakers on board. You know, like if I, I want to see this final and think, you know, wow, it's not going to be tough for either one of them. Let's see who wins. And looking at that matchup, I felt that eh, Djokovic is probably going to win in three. And I was right. So I don't really care how competitive <laughs> it was in the middle of it. It just it didn't matter. All right. I mean, again, it's tough for me to combat that sentiment because ultimately you're right. It was Novak Djokovic who prevails in straight sets, accomplishes all of those records, though. It is worth noting for Stefano Tsitsipas because I went and looked, you know, since the start of 2020, he is also in that 30 win club at the slams, 35 victories for him at his last 11 majors. You look for him in terms of total second weeks he's made, I believe, five of them overall. I mean, two finals now under his belt, a bunch of semifinals as well. Yes, there were a couple of first-round losses. Tiafo wibbled in a couple of years ago, Galan this past year at the U.S. Open. But, like, I mean, again, on paper, here's his last losses at the Slams, throwing out that Galan loss. Djokovic, 
Kyrgios, Runa, Medvedev, Alcaraz, Djokovic, Medvedev, Djokovic. Like, a lot of the time, maybe he's in that Pagula situation where he goes on to lose to the player who goes on to win the freaking slam. Like, It does so, feel like Pagula. It feels like yeah. Pagula in the sense that, like, these are great results that you're listing, and yet it feels like he has been narratively very irrelevant, basically, sure. since he made the Grand Slam final at the French. It just feels like that the momentum for him has been very – he is narratively very stuck, and I think that's why I was looking for something to be a bit more – Ah, exciting. I mean, even to make this <laughs> final, yes, he did beat Yannick Sinner, your boy, but like the other five people he had to beat to make this final, I mean, eh. I mean, it's not something where it's like, oh, but he, you know, really had to, you know, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't the Rabakina of Sabalenka run to a final. So, you know, it just, so much of this felt never in doubt. And if he had managed to at least, you know, win a set, be up a break in the third, something like that, just, you know, to really make Djokovic feel that he's not going to just march towards this record or Nadal for that matter, march towards one of these records, you know, you, they are too old for this, for them to be still kind of having it their own way. It's just, that's how I feel. Fair. Can I give you the last counter on the glass half full for Tsitsipas? Sure. Because that's half the fun. I think these three men have always been attached at the hip. And when I think about the next gen, George would have been the fourth, but the injuries have just thrown him aside. Medvedev, Tsitsipas Zverev. And I know not to introduce that name into the equation here because obviously you're coming out of this Australian Open almost wondering, like, is the window closed for Zverev? That's how bad it looked throughout the course of the event. Still coming back from injury, obviously. Uh, But those are the three guys of the next-gen crew who are making second weeks, making finals of slams, winning. You know, those three guys have all won ATP Tour finals, which is why I often like to put the three of them in their own cohort in their generation the glass half full for Tsitsipas in a month where, again, he went, what, 10-1 and one overall and the only losses to Djokovic. For the first time ever, he's number one of those three in the power rankings, right? As we head into February 2023, do you feel better about Stefano Tsitsipas than you do the other two guys? Because, look, Medvedev, something's up. Like, to, to lose in the fashion that he did to Korda. In a vacuum, again, Korda's one of the on-the-rise talents. It's not that bad of a loss. Or big picture, I should say, it's not that bad of a loss. But in a vacuum, you look at the way Medvedev's lost each of these matches, how repetitive the, the game plans have been of his opponents, the aggression. All of them seem to now acknowledge they need to play with to take time and space away from Daniil. Like, I just trust the Tsitsipas servant forehand. I know at a basic level, even when other things are misfiring, even when you have weapons to attack his backhand, his serve, his forehand, he's going to hold serve 10 times in any match that he plays. Two out of three sets, out of three, three out of five, you expand that number. And I think he's number one for me of those three in the power rankings right now. On one hand, yes, he is certainly playing a lot better than those two. On the other hand, to what end and who cares? I mean, it just feels like maybe those are, you know, those are two open spots for Tsitsipas to make it deeper at a slam. He won't have to worry about beating Medvedev and or uh, Zverev to make another Grand Slam final, which will then but that's put him it. in another opportunity. But that's but, it. Because I mean, th- but there's limited space because you talk about the teenagers. Alcaraz, Sinner, I pencil one of them into a, you know, a quarterfinal, semifinal spot. Djokovic, Nadal, if either one of them's healthy, you pencil them in, if not both, immediately into a semifinal spot. 
That's three spots. There's only one open. And yes, Hachinov and Tiafo and Fritz and Nori and all these other guys we've seen who are a part more broadly of this next gen cohort. Even Kyrgios. Not to Nori, some not my 2022 US Open pick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, they all factor into the conversation. But right now, of the next gen, the OG 96 to 98 crew, CT Pass is the leader in the clubhouse. And like, again, it's the first time, even when he made the French Open final, I still felt better about Medvedev, Zverev, and all the other portions of the calendar. I can't say that right now. With Clay on the horizon, with – it's going to be interesting to see how he performs at Miami and Indian Wells now with these higher expectations. He's always, though, been a guy who's been really freaking good during the indoor hard courts in February. So this is where he pads his stats. Like – He's the leader. Again, it's the first time I'd say that. And much like Sabalenka, Tsitsipas is the oldest 24-year-old you'll ever meet. But he's still just 24 years old. Dare you say at the opening stages of his prime, certainly not deep into it. Leader in the clubhouse of the next-gen cohort, is that fair? I'm glad you brought up Sabalenka because I feel like she, she, <laughs> I'm, I'm, for for many reasons, but mainly because I feel like that Sitsipas is a great foil for Sabalenka. Again, Sabalenka is someone who's worked very hard to get a lot better. And I do feel like there is an aura about a Sitsipas who just feels like that eventually it's going to work out and I'm going to win the slam. If I just believe hard enough and I meditate and I vlog enough that I will become a Grand Slam champion. <laughs> and yes, maybe the maybe the competition in his cohort has receded, but there are younger, better guys who are ascending. So, I mean, it kind of feels like six of one, half a dozen of the other. So, I mean, you know, now we won't have to necessarily compete with Zverev or Medvedev. He'll have to compete with Alcaraz and Rune. I mean, like, or we'll have to compete with, you know, Hubi Hercats or Taylor Fritz or, you know, this coterie of American men who are suddenly, you know, going to be popping up in Grand Slam, you know, second, third, fourth rounds to potentially give him trouble. I mean, Michael Moe, you know, pulled off a great win in a Grand Slam this year. I mean, so, I mean, I don't know. I mean, he didn't really have the draw to make me think that, you know, he really, you know, blitz the fields, make this final. If he'd had like a tougher draw, maybe I would feel differently about where he stands. He's certainly number three, you know. <sighs> You know, the, there was some, you know, another another emotional outburst at this tournament that we didn't even discuss. You know, there is there's a sense perhaps of entitlement coming from Stefano Tsitsipas that he really does feel that he is overdue and perhaps owed this sort of uh, accolade. He could still get it. Um, you know, we, we will see. We will see. He's certainly in a better – listen, he's in a better position than I thought he would be a year ago. He's, he made a second Grand Slam finals. He got over that hump. Maybe this is going to inspire him to bigger and better. But uh, as of right now, based on how he lost that match, I'm not con- I'm not convinced that this is a sure thing, certainly for this year. Yeah, well said. Um, again, you look for uh, Nova, uh, for Stefano Tsitsipas. Again, it's an advantageous portion of the season coming up. And so uh, we all look forward to seeing how he defends this uh, or rides this momentum, uses this confidence. Can he continue to propel himself forward? But you bring up Michael Moe. That can help me transition to some of the other stories we've got coming out of this Australian Open on the men's side. And, you know, again, I told you we'd be right around the hour mark. We've now gone over. So, of course, I lied to you as expected. But the American men, you look right now, top 10 Americans uh, in the ATP rankings, they're all top 50 players. That's the first time an American men's tennis fan's been able to see that in quite a bit of time. And of course, it's Fritz at a career high of eight, Tiafo at a f- career high of 14, Tommy at a career high of 19, Corda, career high 26. You've got 
Brooksby at 36, Ben Shelton at 41, J.J. Wolf at 43, Riley Opelka at 44. All of those players were born 1996 or later. And again, you've got a Maxime Cressy, who's another one in that cohort. He's at number 51 right now as well. They're deep. They're young. We're going to get to see them all at Indian Wells. Ew. At Miami. <laughs> leave it in. Uh, which, deep and young, you leave it in. Um, anyways, you're, yeah, sorry. Leave – sorry, listeners. You should see DK. He's laughing. That's all I, I strive for. At least laugh into your microphone so they can hear you giggling. <laughs> all right. All that said, we'll get to see them advantageous, whether it's Acapulco, Dubai, Rotterdam, wherever they're playing, this is a good month coming up in February for that American group. And then you have the sunshine swing. Let's just look in the immediate future because I'm not ready to tackle the clay court question yet. How long does this group sustain? How real is it? Is this a flash in the pan or the sign of things to come? Well, I, w- I was going to say, I'm, I'm not even thinking of February. I'm thinking of Indian Wells, Miami, because this is going to be some home tournaments for these boys, and it's a big opportunity for them to make some deep runs. I feel like the top guys in the last couple of years haven't played great at Indian Wells or Miami. Obviously, Djokovic hasn't been able to play. You know, there's Medvedev, you know, historically not super comfortable really at either Indian Wells or Miami with the conditions and the ball and everything like that. So these are big moments for, you know, the crowd to lift players who are already in form, you know, into some deep runs and perhaps get them even closer to top 15, top 10. I mean, phenomenal run from Tommy Paul, who beat your boyfriend, Ben Shelton. I mean, I was really, I didn't, I didn't see that one coming. I really felt that it was just going to be the revenge of Ben Shelton at this tournament. I was like, he's going to make the final. <laughs> it's like everything I've ever said about him is going to just blow up in my, or not said about him, it's going to blow up in my face. Um, yeah, I think this is, you have to think that this, coterie of guys this this menagerie of men is really they're all pushing they're pushing each other i mean even if they feel like they're downplaying their expectations oh we're not good enough to win a slam they are pushing themselves to say okay i made a quarterfinal i'm gonna make a semi you made a semi i'm gonna make a final so i think that that is what's pushing we saw they saw what francis did at the u.s open tommy does it in australia so this is sort of ahead of schedule i think i was setting very modest expectations for some of these guys and the fact that they're already sort of surpassing them in january with a lot of hard court tournaments to go between now and early April. This is this is shaping up really well for U.S. American men's tennis. Very well said. Um, all right. With that in mind, by the way, do you, because I didn't invite you on this podcast, not that I didn't invite you, it's just you weren't on this show. Who's your top American man to end the year? Top oh, rank. Um, You're under the under pressure, under the gun. Pick oh, now. Oh, God. I mean, Five, I guess. Four. I mean, I guess Fritz because that's, you know, okay. that's the boring answer. But I mean, Gosh, you got to look at TFO. You got to look at Paul. I feel like the, either of them could perhaps pull together some big results. I, mean, I haven't been super impressed with Fritz just at the slams. Obviously, you know, ran into some some inspired guys in the last two slams, but, you know, he's not figuring out how to beat them. So that's sort of interesting. So physically, he's bionic. Maybe mentally, there's still a bit of a breakthrough yet to come. And we got to see that in the next couple months soon because the, the other American guys are hot on his tail. All right, next topic, Karen Hatchinov. He's made semifinals at back-to-back majors. He has reached at least the third round in 19 of the last 22 majors he's played, which just means like, like that's the definition of tier three to me. You're one of the top 32 guys and you're holding seed in every slam that you play. That's its de- that's how I would define tier three, by the way, typically. But now semifinals, obviously, past two majors, he hasn't won a title since winning Paris all the way back in, what, 2018, I believe, was back when that happened. And yet, 
Karen Hatchinov is still just 26 years old, which is crazy to say out loud because it feels like he's 30. And I made this comparison during the course of it. Is he his generation's Carreño Busta, Roberto Bautista Agut, that guy who just lives in the 9 through 20 category? Or is this foretelling of, hey, maybe he's cleaned some things up? And obviously he's a guy 6'6". The physicality's never been an issue. The serve, the forehands are weapons that can win him free points always. You know, again, he's a guy who may not be exceptional at anything, but he's pretty solid at everything. Where are you with Hatchinoff? Because I think he's a fascinating—he's one of those guys who I'm like, if he just stays this year outside the top 10, then this is it. This is who he is. This is like the last year to show me there's more untapped potential. And to his credit, two slam semifinals in a row. Yeah, I'm glad we never did that podcast about Demon R and Hatchinov <laughs> and how they both they both had what the other one needed because it really feels like, you know, since we've been you know putting that into the universe, Hatchinov has really cleaned up sort of the biggest weakness in his game, which was that forehand. I mean, I think he's just playing a lot more aggressively and he's taking this taking big cuts on that shot and he's not allowing himself to get out of position. And that's really making all the difference. He's just playing so much more consistently. You know, you're not seeing that forehand break down. And that was the biggest problem. The serve is better. The forehand is better. The backhand's always been great. So, you know, back-to-back, again, back-to-back Grand Slam semifinals in in matches, you know, in, in runs that are not, you know, unimpressive. You know, so it's, this does feel like a make or break year. You want to see him really, really break through, but... He's definitely making up for lost time in a great way. We want to see him win a title, I think, in the next couple of months. Yeah, that's it. And it's February. It's indoor hardcore season. Go win a title. Go steal yeah, something somewhere. Like, this is the moment for Karen Hatchinoff. So February, a big month for him. Can he capitalize? He's back up to number 13 in the ATP rankings and really doesn't have a ton of points to defend anywhere. So I think he's another guy to watch. All right, let's go through the disappointments like we did on the women's side. I've got a couple of names for you. Let's start with Yannick Sinner. And here's why Sinner's on this list. He's the Benchich of this list because ultimately he was he got injured first week of the season, loses to Corda, doesn't play until the Australian Open, ends up holding seed, gets knocked out in a tight five-set match by the eventual finalist, Tsitsipas. It's the second time in a row. You know, again, he had match point on Alcaraz at the U.S. Open. Like, if I'm Sinner, I just want everyone to treat me as a tier one guy. And we treat him as a tier one guy here at Cracked Rackets. But I do still think there's this broader perspective that he can't win the big one. And like I feel like he's moved into, I call it the Murray tier because for my whole life it was, when was Murray going to win the first slam? On the women's side, it's the Wozniacki-Halep tier and Pliskova tier. And, you know, again, that's really who it's moved to since is when are they going to win their first slam I guess that's what the problem is, I suppose, for Sinner now. Is that's that disappointment? Is it's like he beats everyone he's supposed to beat, but there's still just something, uh, you know, supposedly something missing against the top guys. And yet, I would point out five sets against Alcaraz, five sets against Tsitsipas. If you actually watch the matches, he is playing at their level. It's just ultimately right now he's been on the losing end. I think that's why I put him in the disappointment category. Is because there's still not in my opinion, this universal acceptance that he is one of the guys right now, but he is one of the guys right now. The Murray comparison is interesting because when you think of 2006, Murray was the guy who broke through probably before Djokovic, and then Djokovic sure. was the one who ended up winning the slam first, so it's slow and steady, I guess, does it's win the Sinner race. It's a Alcaraz thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's got to be brutal for Yannick, who was very much the guy, the young guy, and he's really been usurped again and again by by uh by players who no one was talking about when he was breaking through and making you know a grand slam quarterfinals so 
it's it's a tough one because you know that's that's a match that you would have wanted to see him finally win whether it was against Tsitsipas or Garcia or rather Alcaraz or um Djokovic at Wimbledon I mean these are three really brutal losses and you hope by the French you know on clay you think maybe he'll have a bit more of an edge you know he got very close to beating Tsitsipas at Monte Carlo last year right am I remembering that right I think it was like a really close was it him or was it Rublev? <laughs> That's one of these, these, these fair, these fair ginger boys. <laughs> I can't remember which one is, which one is which. But I mean, for Yannick Sinner, he's still so young and he's still so physically young. Still, I think that's the big thing that he really hasn't grown into his body yet. Whereas you know, Alcaraz is like Captain America. So I mean, it's it's harder <laughs> to put that those expectations on him just yet. But you you want to see him get a, a signature win. I think that's. Sort of what I'm what I'm missing a little bit from Sitsipas, that sort of signature win. I think we want to see these guys get these victories and they haven't gotten them yet. So it's hard to really know where to put him in terms of where he fits in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Well said. And, you know, again, I think he's a guy to watch over this next swing of Miami finalist. I, I, if he's healthy, he's always a guy who's just into quarterfinals at these big events. Medvedev's the obvious one for reasons we discussed earlier. What's your panic rate, uh, level, 1 to 10, for Medvedev right now? Who, by the way, falls to number 12 in the rankings. Ooh, I'm about at a 7, 8. I feel oh. like this is, I mean, because th- we're going back now a year. I mean, this yeah. is basically since he lost the Australian Open final to Nadal. I mean, I can't think of a guy who's gotten to number one in despite really not playing all that great and just sort of riding off of the momentum of the previous year and, you know, sort of having nothing to show for it in 2022. And, you know, it felt like he was going to be one of those guys who came back after Wimbledon not being able to play and, you know, really just take the hardcore season like gangbusters. And it, it hasn't happened. And now we're, we're running out of hardcore tournaments all over again for him. You know, the Indian, again, Indian was Miami, not typically fruitful ground for him. And then clay, which he doesn't particularly enjoy. We don't know if we'll get to play Wimbledon starts to become a very short season for Daniel Medvedev. So I don't, it's brutal because it felt like he was in a good headspace. He was playing well enough, you know, before he, he played Corda. So it's disappointing because it really did feel like he had figured it out. He won his slam and, you know, it, it may just take a bit of time for him to get back on the horse. And I don't know how much time it's going to take. Yeah. Well said. All right. I would also, by the way, throw Zverev into that category. I know he's coming back from injury, but it was tough. The service yips combined with he doesn't have the elite athleticism to grind out matches, which he so often did when those yips entered. Uh, you, yeah, you have to you have to be a little concerned uh, if you're Sad. in the Alex Zverev camp. You ready for this one? Sure. I beat you so badly. We should say a warning, viewer discretion is advised with how badly I crushed you on the ATP side of this draft. Let's just go player for player. And, I mean, I don't even have to. I'll just, you know what? I just crushed you so badly. We can do this quickly. Alcaraz, Runa, Kyrgios, Musetti, Team. Those are David's five players. Only one of them made it past the first round of the Australian Open. Team Gruskin, ah! FAA, Sinner, Draper, Corda, Shelton. I crushed you in the opening month of the season. All right. Let's not go crazy. I mean, it was like... What do you mean, let's not go crazy? Shelton had match point on Djokovic Adelaide 1 and made the quarterfinals in Australia. Korda beats Medvedev in straight sets, which, by the way, is my concern for Medvedev. You just can't lose that match in straight sets. But Korda, quarterfinalist, match points on Djokovic. Draper, fun first-round match against Nadal. Sinner, five sets against Tsitsipas. I know FAA lost to Lechechka, but he's still in that, you know... Final 32 seconds. You definitely said Ben Shelton had match point on Novak Djokovic, and I went, Oh, I meant Korda. I meant Korda. I meant Korda. Sorry, week one. 
I've never Googled something so fast. I'm like, did I totally miss that? Yeah, no, sorry. Corda. Corda had the match point on Shelton. Not, but my team, like, what did your team do this month? Nothing. Yeah, but my team is still better. So you can enjoy this. <laughs> I mean, and neither of them, none of them won a slam. So, I mean, I would, I would, I would, I would bask in this victory because I feel like long term, it's still going to pay off for me. I mean, God. We were a net cord away from it, from it paying off for me with Hulkaruna. I mean, like that is sure. just we didn't really talk enough about that match. People don't talk enough about how brutal that match was <laughs> and how um how long it might take Hulkaruna to recover from that one because the fact that he conspired to lose that match from five two up and having all those opportunities. I mean, ah, that's not great and for all for as much as I've been talking up the younger guys. The fact that you know the most recent result is that you know Alcaraz second long term injury Runa chokes in a five set at a Rublev. I mean. <laughs> Maybe maybe it's not going to be the young guys. Maybe maybe the guys who are going to beat Nadal Djokovic aren't even born yet. Maybe maybe that's how long it's going to take. Yeah, look, uh, um, I I think across the board, you're right. Alcaraz, Runa, a very high upside, but man, that's a that's a. I get an incomplete. Curious didn't even play, and yeah, yeah, yeah he played a good match against Rublev. I that mean, was a, again, that was an unlucky draw. Player for player, five versus five, just. I was better across the board, so I. Oh, you you got the guy who survived the almost survived the Netflix curse, so I guess that gives you bonus points. Yeah, La- no. last man standing. A hundred percent. So I am gonna say again, winner Alex, but fine, you can have your long term perspective. That said, last two big picture stories to ask you about because I'm sure many break listeners want to hear your perspective. First, let's start uh, with the Rabakina coaching situation and Rabakina putting out the statement about. The attitude of her coach in response to, let's be clear, Pam Shriver casting some doubt on the relationship between the two of them. Do you have any comment to the entire saga? I kind of missed it while I was at kickoff weekend, so I'm not really sure what I missed. Um, I don't really know how much I want to say, but <laughs> what I can say is that um, – it wasn't surprising to me that people read an intense energy from Vukic. And so I don't think that Pam Shriver was pointing out nothing. And maybe when she was kind of not making a big deal, but certainly making a point to point it out, maybe maybe she knows something, but I don't know. And obviously, Rabakina was very forceful. Certainly, the statement that came from Rabakina's account was very forceful about you know the situation. And obviously, they have gotten along. You've seen you know footage of them on social, you know, being very friendly and everything. So you you don't want to really cast dispersions on a situation you don't know anything about. But I, it did seem a bit intense at points. And maybe the fact that this there's been a bit of a light shown on it will make the make the dynamic a little bit different. I mean, obviously, this this relationship with them is. You would imagine it's going to start to evolve now that she's, you know, really ascended from, you know, up and coming player to now two time Grand Slam finalist, Grand Slam champion. So maybe things will work themselves out themselves. But um, yeah, it's it was it was a weird. Um, it felt pointed the fact that Pam Shriver was pointing it out. Maybe it was almost as if she wasn't necessarily speaking just from what she was seeing on the TV screen. Yeah, oh, very well said. Uh, I mean, again, I, I I have to go back and read. The statements. I have to go back and really lock in on the interactions because I, I'm not going to lie. I didn't follow it closely watching the. There replay. were some slow mo like mouth mouth lips and if uh, lip reading of you know okay. maybe a bit not disparaging but not super positive and so okay. that was and they got a really good camera on that that they played a bit. Yeah. Okay. You know, interesting. You know, the last one. Where are you with Barbara Krejcikova and Katarina Sinyakova because they just keep winning all the time, like over and over 
and over again. Slam title after slam title. And, you know, again, they've won the career slam, the golden slam, the tour finals, the gold medals. I think they won three junior slam doubles titles together as well. Like, are we in the midst of watching some greatness here on the women's side? Because they just keep winning. They've dropped one set in, like, their last four slam victories. Yeah, I mean, they are a lesson in what happens when you persist and you stay together and you have this long, you know, long-running partnership. And this is what the payoff is. I mean, that the the current state of women's doubles does not really is not really conducive to that, really outside of the checks. And I guess maybe a golf and Pagula, who, you know, at any given point, because of their singles commitments, you don't know how much longer that partnership may last. You know, certainly I think even last year they didn't play the full season together. So you don't know where how that that partnership is going to evolve. I mean, it's certainly good for them. But for me, I can't help but think of, you know, when I first started really working and covering the WTA, you know, that 2015 WTA finals field, whether it was, you know, um, Hingis and Mirza, uh, Lavachka Varadetska, uh, Muguruza Suarez Navarro, uh, the Russians Makarova Veznina. It just there was a it felt like a much deeper field. And I admit, for someone who has enjoyed women's doubles over the years, I haven't been paying that much attention because it really does, in many ways, feel like the Czechs and nobody else. So it's great for them that they're clearing up, cleaning up the table. But um, I would like to see perhaps a bit more of an infusion of some other. Um, some other teams, you know, it's a shame that Sabalenka is no longer playing doubles, for example. Sure. I mean, her and Mertens were really an interesting partnership. And, you know, Azarenka and Barty were playing for a couple of years. Unfortunately, that that team hasn't um, is no longer able to to play. And, you know, we're not seeing Babos and Mildenovich, um making it deep or whether it was uh, Mildenovich and Garcia. You know, we, I think that we need to see a bit more um, depth uh, in the in the women's doubles field. And hopefully that starts to take a bit more shape. But I think right now, I think a lot of the singles players are focusing on their singles. Very well said. I will say this. I don't care who they'd be playing. I'd take Krejcikova, who... Well, certainly now. I mean, with their momentum. I mean, they're they're, they're very tough She's unequivocally a Hall of Famer now. I think they both probably are just because they've accomplished it all together. Um, And I know the single slam probably helps put Barbara over the edge. But, like, I'd put them both in, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would... Certainly Krejcikova. I mean, you you wonder what... Well, that's a lock. That's that's a lock. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I I would like to see Krechkova in, inducted individually. I think just based sure. on what she's done, I think that's she's earned it at this point, and maybe you know certainly a lot more opportunities. I mean, they're just an interesting um, partnership because they yeah. really are they're coworkers. They're yeah. not. This is not necessarily like the childhood best friend, which is it's an easier narrative to write because they did come from juniors together. This is just these are two really um, in sync colleagues playing, and so I think that's probably why we don't get that same emotional intensity uh, that you might, might expect of Elkoff and Pagula, for example, who are very much best friends or, you know, what we were seeing from some of the other uh, top teams over the last couple of years. So this is, you know, this is just expert, precise doubles being played to, to perhaps its highest level. So that's certainly something to marvel at. But as we discussed, blind excellence is not something that I always necessarily ascribe to. Fair. Very fair. Well, then with that said, a lot of great pieces written at tennis.com by you and the team. Anything you want to plug? Any last thoughts before we wrap this show? Oh, who can remember? I mean, <laughs> when, you're writing, when you're writing most of your stories at three in the morning, I mean, I was very pleased to be up for the women's final because that was right around the time that the news about Federer meeting that K-pop group Blackpink came out. And I was like, I was on this. I was like, I am going to get that K-pop engagement. Um, there were some fun, 
some fun stuff on baseline, Sabalenka's quotes, her her phenomenal photo shoot, which I could talk about till the end of time, her Princess Peach realness, which is really phenomenal for me. I really hope we get to see more um, photo shoots like that from Sabalenka over the next couple of months. But um, yeah, I highly recommend everything on tennis.com at baseline. We really gave you comprehensive coverage of the 2023 Australian Open. Yeah, oh, very well said. And again, you can find a lot of the links at DKTNNS on Twitter. Um, yeah, it was a great first slam. I'm excited to go back to normal hours. I'm excited, certainly, though, for what we see come out of this as well. With that said, there's our coverage of the 2023 Australian Open in the books. A shout out to all of you listeners who tuned in day in, day out to our recaps, to our previews. We had a record setting month uh, from a downloads perspective here in January, and we know that only happened because of all of you. So shout out to you. Shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. Shout out to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. And shout out to the guest who consistently tops our charts of the most downloaded episodes each and every month. David Kane for joining me once again. David, I give you the final word. Uh, I have something to say, but I won't say it. <laughs> no, come on. What, you, did, we were making that's what she said jokes, and now you're going to censor We'll save it for the Patreon, as you like to say, David. We'll save it for the Patreon. I was just going to say I put the happy in Happy's Lamb. That's really funny. All right. Well, then, with all of that said, for our fantastic, wonderful co-host, David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all this year at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? And that's the break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you, as always, my friend. Das Vidania.